Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here together, Lord, on this morning. We thank you for the fact that you have called so many people to have such a passion for your word that even on a morning like this, we would choose to come out and gather together, Lord. I thank you that you have brought us here safely, and I ask that through your faithfulness, you would cause us to be edified and blessed in this study, revealing who you are through your word, which is a blessing to all who hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So turn with me to the book of Amos. No secrets this time, no initial questions. I'm not going to hide what book it is. Which isn't really a great secret since we've been going in order for a while. So as long as you come faithfully, you, you would have known what's going on. Yeah, most important book you'll ever do. But, uh. You should be able to empathize with this man, Todd. Why aren't you up here? I'm glad for your health, brother. Um, So while we're not starting with a question, we will have plenty of questions baked into this lesson. So feel free to take a moment, limber up your wrists, get ready to (laughs) raise your hand and give an answer, warm up your voice, whatever is (laughs) necessary. I just want to say that... I know I've said it before, but doing these studies and preparing for them has been such a blessing for me. Um, I'm growing in my love for scripture, in my knowledge of God's greater plan of redemption in the whole Bible. Um, And just really growing to to love how God writes things, mm-hmm. how he has chosen to communicate these ideas in ways that are striking and beautiful. Mm-hmm. These things are not bland, and as you dig into them, they're such riches. So thank you all for this opportunity to continue doing this and, and teaching faithfully. <coughs> Once again, right up front, we're going to get right into it. The main idea of this book, or the main thing that we should take away from reading it, is the fear of the Lord. The things written in this book are made to make sinners tremble. And if at the end of this study, if after reading this book, there is no trembling in your heart at the things spoken here you should take heed because you are likely trifling with the things of God and treating them as light matters. The book of Amos is made to make us feel the fear of the Lord, to tremble at this God. My plan for this study is to fly over the book and touch down at various points in order so that we get a a progressive sense of what the book is about and what is being said. But before we do that, we need to have a, a backdrop to understand the context. I don't know about you all, but I don't have the same cultural knowledge and historical assumptions as a 8th century BC Israelite. So for me to understand this properly, I need to dig into the background so that the things that are said here hit me like they should hit the audience at the time. So first question right out of the gate, who wrote the book? Amos. Just a warm up, testing the waters a bit. Wake up a little. We can be quick on questions like that. How do we know that it's Amos? Yeah. Verse one, you know, the words of Amos. Pretty simple. Um, Can we trust that what the Bible says is true, that this is the word of Amos? Yeah. Yes, we can. All right, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa 
which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So what are the two kingdoms captured in this first verse? Judah and Israel. Which one's the north kingdom? And the south kingdom is Judah. The the time period being talked about here, these kings uh, would be around uh, 760 to 750 B.C., And this would be the high watermark of Jewish prosperity before, since the time of Solomon. Um, The, both of the kingdoms are at peace. They are prospering in that peace and enjoying wealth and security that for many years has been unaccessible to them through many wars and conflicts and strife. But that gives us a warning about the dangers of prosperity. They may look out at their kingdoms and see abundance, see luxury. But what Amos will reveal is in their hearts and at the root of these kingdoms is corruption. We should not be deceived by outward appearances. Luxury and prosperity is not the same thing as the favor of God. And this is repeatedly, all throughout scripture and all throughout our lives, a lesson that is being taught. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God judges the heart. We need to look at the heart of matters. So who is king in Israel at this time? Jeroboam. Uzziah is the king of uh, Judah. If we want to learn a little bit more about Jeroboam, we read in 2 Kings chapter 14, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned for 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So is Jeroboam a good king or a bad king? Bad king. Yet, God uses this bad king to save Israel. We read later on in 2 Kings 14, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Despite the sinfulness of this king, God wants his word to be upheld and he will stand, he will wield a sinful king to save his people. It's a good lesson to know that God is so powerful, his love so without bounds, that he is even capable of using evil rulers to save his people. So that we do not trust in the goodness of our authorities but we trust in the goodness of our God. Even when we have bad kings or bad rulers or bad presidents, we can know we have a good God who is working behind it. So what does this king's name remind us of? Should be reminiscent of another character. Well, Jeroboam the first, yeah, the one who launched a civil war that ended up dividing the people of God into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who this king is named after, 
also established <clears throat> two idols, two golden calves, one in uh, Bethel and one in Dan. He is the, the archetype of the bad king, this Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And this Jeroboam follows after him, a man with the same man, same name and a like manner. So application, don't start civil wars and don't erect golden calves, especially in Dan and Bethel. Just kidding. The, the real application is don't follow Bethel Church and their teachings. <laughs> All right, the really real application. <laughs> don't cling to the sins of your parents. Your ancestors have made mistakes and you should be careful not to repeat them. Do not be a, a child of sinful parents, but be a child of the true God and follow his ways. This is very important because there are lots of valuable things for society and for Christians that we find in tradition and in following after those who came before us. But we must remember that we should not <clears throat> follow the actions of sinful men. That we should realize those who, who have taught us and come before us are not perfect. And so we should hold them up to the standard of scripture and rather be conformed to that. Follow those who come before us insofar as they follow Christ. Second point of application from this, avoid divisions and make unity. Jeroboam split the people of God. There is one God and it does not fit for the one God to have two separate peoples divided against each other. Do not make divisions and fight to make unity. Now on to the, the title character, Amos. He is a, a prophet. We know this. He, he is speaking the words of God, and he has written this book for us. <clears throat> but he was not always a prophet, as Todd pointed out earlier. He is a tender of sheep. It said that he was among the shepherds of Tekoa. We also read in another section of this book <clears throat> that Amaziah was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. That means by profession, he did not live off of being a prophet. But he was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. And he says, but the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. This is Amos. He is a shepherd made prophet. <clears throat> what nation is Amos from? <clears throat> I apologize. That's not in the first verse. I thought it was there. Judah. He's from Judah. <clears throat> What nation is he preaching to? Most of the north, but somewhat to the south as well. Yeah, but primarily to Israel. Yeah. You know, the words he he received concerning <coughs> Israel in the days of Uzziah. <clears throat> so Amos is a, a shepherd. He is no one special, no one of great significance, apart from this task that God has assigned him to do. He would be considered of low station in the land of Israel. <clears throat> but we know from passages like 1 Corinthians 1.27 that God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and that he chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong and that God chose even what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is what God does. He takes people who may be of little account in the sight of man and wields them for great purposes. And so an application question for us, who does the ministry in the church? 
So April says, we all do. And that's entirely right. We are not to, to see the work of God as limited only to the official people set up in those positions. You know, in this time it would be the, the priests and the king and things like that. But the work of God is to be done by every man and woman from the greatest of them to the least. And that's, <clears throat> that's something that we made an effort to put in our own mission statement as a church. You know, Sovereign Grace Chapel exists to worship and glorify God by equipping the saints for the work of ministry. The purpose of, of church is so that we might all be equipped to then go out and do the work that God has called us to. And so God uses even a lowly shepherd and he uses people like you and like me to fulfill his purposes. Consider two other things about him, <clears throat> about Amos being a shepherd. This is very similar to the Christmas account that we get in Luke where the angel of the Lord reveals himself, where an angel reveals himself to the shepherds who are watching. We have the word of the Lord coming to a shepherd, and then in the Christmas account, the words of the Lord come to shepherds, <clears throat> where God is making himself known to people who are not great in the land, but lowly. The other interesting thing to notice is the echoes of David. David was a shepherd before God called him through Samuel to become a king and to guide his people. In the same way, Amos was a shepherd and was called out of that position to guide the people of Israel. And this is once again highlighting how God works Amos is a, a prophet from Judah, and yet he is sent to Israel. This is <clears throat> a odd choice. The, I would imagine that the northern kingdom would be more likely to listen to someone from their kingdom and have higher respect for, for a man of some station you know, from their nation who came to speak to them rather than someone from a different nation and of no repute being sent to them. But God, by raising up this prophet from Judah to go to Israel, he upholds the, the primary place that Judah, Jerusalem, and the temple have. This is the place that God has set for the right worship. And what Israel, the northern kingdom, is doing is a violation of proper worship by establishing other temples and other places of worship. It's also a sign of the depravity of Israel at this time that they themselves are lacking in men of God to preach to them the truth. And so God must raise up a man from another nation to send to them that they might learn obedience. It's also a, a sign of love. As we read later in Amos, that God sends his prophets to his people as an act of faithfulness and love mm -hmm. to them. <clears throat> but it is also God requiring humility for any who would hear his word. We might like to think that we are, are something or someone who deserves respect and honor. A, we might more easily listen to a, a dignified person, someone who seems to have it all together or to be of good reputation and high standing. But God makes it so that if they are to, to listen and repent from the disaster that he is going to bring about against them, they must humble themselves and not stand proud, but bow low and listen to the words of a shepherd from a foreign nation. 
But it's also worthy of appreciating that if we were in God's position here, we likely would not have sent anyone to Israel. At least looking at my own heart, I would have looked at Israel and been like, you know, those guys, they have just just left the path. They, they've got their, their temples with false worship, golden calves, and, you know, they're just so off the deep end. I'm just going to focus on Judah, who at least has some things going for them, you know. When you look out at the church, do you, do you focus on those who, who have enough together that, that you can see, oh, I can get how this person can improve in these ways and get better. Or are you willing to go even to the ones who are lost and broken and seem to be a smoldering wick soon about to go out? I'm just going to, I just thought, you know, uh, that's, that would be God uh, selecting people on merit. Yeah. Some, some think that they somehow earned or have or are. Uh, when he's really... Uh, maintaining his promise to, to uh, David and all the other uh, patriarchs in, in sticking with Israel. Yeah. And it's not on merit, and that's that's an amazing thing because we all need a God who is willing to send His word to people who have no signs that they are ready to receive it. Uh, Revelation two. But I have this against you who tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they may commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Yeah. We all want to judge too quickly. And that passage does point out that there is a time to right. to resist the proud. You know, it says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so his word might be put before them, but when they, they push back on it so fervently, there are times to withdraw ourselves from that. And there are times in which God does that himself from the sinfulness of people. Lastly, I, I just want to highlight the fact that so often when we read the prophets, what we find is them proclaiming judgment. Very rarely is a prophet sent to the people to tell them, great job, keep it up. <laughs> You've got it together. You know, Don't worry about it. I once complained to a sales manager back when I was in sales. I said, Mike, we always hear from you when things are negative. I said, we never hear from you when things are good. And I said, you know, even when Pavlov's dogs, when they rang the bell, they came and got food. He looked at me and gave me the most valuable lesson I've ever had in my professional life. And he said, Pat, there are other jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, see you, bye. Yeah. You were just talking about that. You're right. We never hear it. Like that, we would like that with our kids too. People that have children—that's something that parents always have to be careful for. Yeah. Don't be this constant thorn on your side where you're just you know, provoking them to wrath. Just always correcting them all the time with a sense of negativity. Yeah, and uh, I don't want to give a a sense that the the word of God no, is no. is no. only ever preaching no. judgment. No, no, no. Uh, but it says far more about us yes. than it does about the love of God that so many of these prophets are sent to preach judgment because God because we are so depraved that if God is going to send a message to his people over and over again that message needs to be repent and obey because you are doing the opposite the message of judgment was a reality that was soon to take place, as you said, the book was written between 750 and 760 BC, and the Assyrians came in in 722 or thereabouts, and so the, the northern kingdom was wiped out. They were exiled, they were tortured, and and, yeah. and cast away. So it was a, a real thing that was imminent, and it was his 
duty to warn them about coming judgment, yeah. which becomes for us a, another kind of a reality, that there is a judgment ahead uh, for us as well, for the world particularly, when they have to meet the Lord. Yeah. A real judgment day of the Lord. Amen, brother. Yeah. And it, a big part of what, what a book like this does is because we're not in the northern kingdom expecting the the soon you know decimation and carry into exile, but it shows us principles and character of who God is and what He thinks about different matters. And I think it just reinforces the idea that a negative message is a loving message, yeah. uh, trying to uh, turn someone aside from something that they're obviously doing that's not going to be beneficial. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but an enemy multiplies kisses. We hear about the the false prophets who who peace who preach peace, peace when there is no peace. And far be it from us, or at least it should be, to preach to anyone peace when the wrath of God is coming to them. So I want to give one comment on the the way the book is is written and then we will get into our fly-through of the book of Amos. This book, like I remarked about Joel, is literarily striking. It is a satire full of biting and sarcastic comments. It is smattered with similes and metaphors. There are striking analogies and painful rhetorical flourishes that should cut to the heart and cut us quick. And even if you don't know what I mean by those different literary terms, know this, that this book is strikingly written and carries much of its, its force of argument through the style of the words that are chosen. One commentary... One commentator writes, It is a literary collage in which the author dazzles with his imaginative energy and inventiveness and uses the techniques of satire to subject readers to the, to the shock treatment with regard to their complicity with evil and especially in its institutionalized forms. This is a, a, a collage of depravity of man being highlighted over and over from different facets it evokes this these themes of depravity and destruction so let's begin Amos proper chapter 1 verse 2 and he said the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the tops of Carmel withers. This is a proclamation that is to set the tone for the book. And it is a tone of terror. The roar of a lion is the, the roar of this massive predator as it is chasing down its prey to destroy them. It is a fearful and frightful noise. And the roar of the Lord withers everything in the land from the lowest to the highest, from the pastures of the shepherds to the tops of the mountain, is withered in terror by the proclamation of the Lord. We read at the end of the first verse that Joash is writing two years before the earthquake. This is an earthquake that he prophesies that that will damage the land. And you can imagine the, the similarities between a great rumbling earthquake and this idea of the roaring lions lion of the Lord proclaiming his coming. This is the the tone setting verse to start off the book. So we carry on into to what is the start of the first section of Amos, which is about judgment on other nations. There are six 
parallel proclamations that each begin with saying, thus says the Lord, then talk about the repetition of sin, saying, you know, for three three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. This is saying that the sinfulness of the people he is proclaiming about has mounted so much that there is no relenting from the disaster. Then it goes on to to spell out some of the details of their sin. Then it spells out some of the details of the devastation and closes with the end of this, this bracketing statement, says the Lord. It, the proclamations start with, thus says the Lord, and ends with, says the Lord. So we'll read one of them and then understand that these parallel in six other um, <clears throat> examples. Chapter 1, verse 13 and following. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, that's the capital of the Ammonites, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile. He and his princes together, says the Lord. This is the the pattern of the proclamation that is repeated six times against various nations and for various sins. God will judge the nations. And even apart from the proclamation of his word to them, he still holds them to a standard of moral decency. There is a, a expectation here that they should know better than to perpetrate the evil things that they are committing and that wrath rightly falls on them because of it. And we should also see in this that God cares. He looks out and he sees the suffering that these nations are causing, the violation that they are perpetrating, and he desires to avenge it. The question, does that indicate uh, that People know right and wrong, and they're held accountable even if they're, you know, non-believers or anything like that. There, there's a certain level of, uh, I think, basic understanding of humanity that there are certain things that just they don't do. Yeah. Um, it seems like that's what he's alluding to here because these are not, uh, they're not Israel. Well, let's see. No, Moab and all of that. Yeah, no, this is not Israel yet. And we'll see later on that God uses a different standard for the sins of Israel. And that highlights that he still has a standard for the nations that they are falling short of. That God holds people accountable because of the the basic morality that we all have. We can sear our consciences really badly. I, I think that uh, we should be surprised in Romans 1, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In Romans 2, we have the text that talks about the Jews were given the uh, special revelation of the law so the conscience could not be, uh, uh, the consciences were still guilty according yeah. to what was given to them in a special way, but also for the Gentile who know the works of the law and because of that they're still guilty even though uh, they can claim ignorance because they're not like Israel so in, in, in a sense um, delusion suppression of truth does not mean uh, unaccountability nor does it mean that they don't have a conscience that still God says believe or repent yeah. Brother Pat Romans talks about those who do such things know that they deserve death, right? Yeah. Right. You know, though they know <clears throat> that God condemns such things, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So this is the, the first section of Amos, judgment on others or judgment on the nations. 
We then get to the second section of Amos, starting in chapter 2, verse 4. This is judgment on you. That's at least to the people he's preaching to. um, Or judgment on the people of God. Verse 4, thus says the Lord. This is the same pattern that he used for the nations. For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Three transgressions and four, it's like this this sense of sinfulness upon sinfulness, mounting over. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes, but they have let, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. What a a sad point when the people of God are falling under the same pattern of condemnation that the nations deserve. But if I'm a, a man of the northern kingdom and I'm hearing Amos preach these words... He's had my agreement up to this point. You know, the nations, they're sinners. They deserve it. Oh, yeah, God, go and punish them. Keep preaching, Amos. Then he gets to Judah. Might cause me to pause for a moment. They're the same people. I mean, different nations, same people. But, you know, maybe I don't like the people from Judah that much, and... Yeah, I can see how they might deserve that wrath. Thankfully, I'm in Israel, and I'm all set. <clears throat> but it continues on in chapter six, in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. What should that remind us of? Selling the righteous for silver. What a a picture of depravity, you know, that is ultimately fulfilled in Judas' betrayal of the Christ. Amos speaks so that the people of Israel would condemn themselves. They have up to this point likely been in agreement with the proclamations of Amos. But now the same thing they have agreed about is now agreeing against themselves. Just as Nathan the prophet comes to David the king, tells him this story about the wickedness of a man. And... David rightly says, you know, this is a terrible man and he deserves to die for this this cruelty. And Nathan says, you are the man, such that David condemns himself. Amos takes the same tack and makes it so that the people of Israel have just agreed with him against themselves and advocating for their own deserved condemnation. They are sinning like the nations that they condemn and deserve the same condemnation. But let us look deep, more deeply at the, the painstaking way in which Amos draws out and highlights the depths of the depravity of Israel. Starting in verse 6. For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and a father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside the altar on a garment taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. This is flourish after flourish to highlight just how wicked they are. 
There's a lot we could draw out here, but just a few things. The garments taken in pledge highlights when in Exodus 22:26 God tells them that if they take a man a poor man's garment in pledge, they are to return it to them at the end of the day so that they might have something to sleep in. But they take it and use it for further cushioning of their own debauchery. Or the wine of those who have been fined speaks of using legal action to unjustly fine the poor for your own benefit. To take the position, your positions and advantages as leaders and legal authorities to exploit the poor who cannot defend themselves to secure more luxury for yourself. This is deep depravity and it is all done even in the house of God, as if they were pagans fornicating like the, <clears throat> like the Baals. What, a, a, what a, a deep level of depravity. God goes on to speak further about what he has done for Israel, his, his great <clears throat> deeds he's done to defend them. And then from there, in chapter 3, verse 2, we hear about their special position and the consequences of it. 3-2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God's favor that he has given to them conveys greater responsibility for righteousness. Their judgment is even worse than the nations because they have received time and time again the abundant love of the God of, of God. Be very careful that you do not trifle with the love and grace of God. Know that the favor he has extended to you is a call to greater obedience and responsibility. To those who much has been given, much is expected. We, we have been received great blessings even just to sit here and hear the word. And we are called to be great stewards of those blessings. From there, uh, Amos continues to make arguments about their deserving of disaster. But Amos 3.7 is a little bright spot in the midst of this judgment. For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. He is not just callously destroying them or even justly judging them. But he takes the time to reveal his plans to prophets to go to his people so that they might turn and repent. God reveals his secrets to his prophets so that the nations may understand. Let's look at 3.13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord of God, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. This is one of the places where Jeroboam set up the golden calf. And this is such an important lesson. We've actually seen this other places in scripture. That if you will not tear down the altars of your sin, God will do it himself and it will not be pleasant. With the, the Asherah and high places, God has sent nations into Israel in the past because they refused to tear them down. And then the other nations in their warfare tore them down. If you will not turn from your sin, God may send suffering your way to destroy the idols that you are clinging to. Sometimes 
we are suffering so that we might learn to turn from the idols that we are loving. For one is just a, a striking um, turn of phrase. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. He is talking about the fat, gross luxury that they wallow in. Or down further in verses 4 and 5. Come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply your transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. And proclaim free will offerings. Publish, me, pu- publish them. For you love to do so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Can you imagine one of us going up to a pastor of a UCC church who is complicit with the LGBT community saying, You cows of... Selfish. You are complicit in the evil, the transgressions that God is soon to judge. Well, especially since it's, a, it, it's addressed to women. So to go up and call women cows like that would definitely have a, <laughs> a certain impact. Yeah. A certain impact. I, I, think, I think an aneurysm would be the least of your problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> this is. In the, in the passage we just read, this is some striking sarcasm to highlight just horrible, how horrible their sinfulness is. It, it is the mocking of a man who was watching another man commit folly after folly, receive advice, and let, yet refuse to change. Go ahead, keep doing it, and wonder why you end up suffering. This is a horrid state for the people of God to be in. And what they are practicing, that they are being mocked for, is worthless religion that is detestable in the sight of God. Later on we read in verses 6 and 7, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. And yet you would return to me, declares the Lord. What? He he takes stuff away from them and expects them to, to return to him. I mean, we, we usually think that, that God needs to come to us with gifts so that we might want to, to draw near to him. Like, okay, God, you've brought some really nice presents. So, you know, I, I think, yeah, I will stop, you know, being against you and I'll come near to you. But God uses the suffering of sin and its inability to satisfy, to lead us to something greater. Augustine says our hearts are always restless until they find our rest in you. God sends us restlessness to teach us to turn to him. And so sometimes our suffering is there so that we might trust in God and be satisfied in him. Look also at how they are punished like the nations. Verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt, 
verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. He's, he's taking the, some great heinous examples from their history and say, you have been worthy of the same thing. And then it, it gets even deeper in verse 12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That's, that's God saying, my coming to you is going to mean your destruction. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. What a fearful state for the people of God to be in. Oh, that we might tremble over sin and realize just how heinous it is that it deserves these reactions. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the winds and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning in darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts is his name. The fear of Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the start. And even as believers, there are times where we need to feel some terror in our inner being at how horrible sin is to a holy God. But this is not the last section of the book of Amos. Section three is a call to redemption. This sits at the heart of the book of Amos. It starts up with this lamentation. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. And yet God is there. Verse three, for thus says the Lord, the city... Sorry, I'll skip down to verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. Bethel, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. This is a promise. Turn to God and he will relent from the devastation. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because it leads us to understand the right relation and ultimately leads us to repent and be brought together with God. Later on in this section, it says, verse 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Sinners should have no expectation that the day of the Lord will be a relief for them. People who practice vain religion and do not trust in God in their hearts and do not make their ways pure before him should not expect that the coming of the Lord should be good for them. He says after this, verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And your peace offerings of fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, and to the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
Did you bring to me sacrifices and offering during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? This is that religion does not make people right before God, especially when their behavior is unjust in a violation of the right orders that God has decreed. James says, true religion, pure and undefiled before God is this, that you visit orphans and widows. The, the love of others, the, the care for other people is one of the prime ways in which we show whether our hearts have been changed with the abundance of God. Moving on to section four, which starts in chapter eight. We have once again the judgment continuing. Verses two and three. Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. The Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel, and I will never again pass by them. That's a reference to the Passover. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. The judgment continues because they have not repented. If God punishes you, repent before he makes a complete end of it. This is what we, we need to believe this so that we run to the cross. Eight verses seven through twelve. <clears throat> the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, everyone who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile in Egypt? Let's skip down to verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. May we never be worthy of such a thing. May God never have to take his word from us. May he uphold us by his grace. What a a sad thing when the judgment of God means the removing of his word. That is, the word of God is the, the heart of his fellowship with man. And if that is removed, so is the relationship. Thankfully, there's one last section to the book of Amos. Redemption and hope. Chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. What is, what is the ultimate fulfillment of the fallen house of David? He said son would always but what's the ultimate uh, fulfillment of this picture of David's house being fallen inward? Restoration, you say? Well, fall, the house being fallen inward. It's, it's Jesus dead in the grave. When the, the ultimate Davidic king, the, the temple of God, you know, Jesus who tabernacled among us, temple, you know, when he says, I... I will destroy this body and in three, this temple and in three days will build it up again. The ultimate fulfillment of the fallen booth of David is Christ lying in the grave. And Amos writes, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old such that the, the people of God are, are made anew in Christ, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine and shall make gardens and eat fruit. And I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. After all this judgment, after the fear of the Lord, our hope is in Christ's resurrection. That is the first promise that everything will be made new. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Might we live in the fear of you, not as people who do not have a hope, but as people who do in Christ the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.